0: Sample efficiency is one thing that comes up a lot in reinforcement learning. We want algorithms to be sample efficient. And I agree with that, and I disagree with that. I agree with it to the extent that sometimes I see papers from one large company that maybe I won't name that has an x-axis that is like 10 to the 10th power or something, and it's a really simple task. And I don't really know if I can trust the results. Like, maybe it's just reinforcing the problem. So from that standpoint, I think that we shouldn't be using tons and tons of data to solve simple tasks. But the same standpoint, I think that if we have a really tiny amount of data, then we're inevitably only going to be learning a very narrow thing.
1: Hey there, I'm your host, Kanjoon, and we are Generally Intelligent, an independent research lab developing AI agents that mirror the fundamentals of human-like intelligence and that can learn to safely solve problems in the real world. On our podcast, we interview researchers about their behind-the-scenes ideas, opinions, and intuitions that are hard to share in papers and talks. We hope you learn as much as we have in our quest to understand and build the mind. Chelsea Finn is an assistant professor at Stanford and part of the Google Brain team. She's interested in the capability of robots and other agents to develop broadly intelligent behavior through learning and interaction at scale. As a PhD student, she was the first to show that end-to-end training of robotic perception and control systems performed better than training components separately. And she also authored the model-agnostic meta-learning algorithm, MAML. This interview was recorded live at a Women in ML event we hosted at Generally Intelligent. So you'll hear some background noise and the interview is a bit less in depth than usual. Your co-host here is Ellie. How did you get into computer science, into AI? And then how did your research interests start and how
0: do they evolve over time until today? At MIT, I majored in computer science, was always interested in how to build things that are intelligent computer vision was something that i was interested in at the very start like how do you make things see the world i actually wasn't planning to go to grad school both my parents worked in industry i thought a phd wasn't very useful <laughs> and then i did a couple internships and i realized that all the people in industry that were doing really cool stuff all had phd's and so i was like well okay if i want to do cool stuff i guess i should also get a phd and then i can do cool stuff <laughs> i applied to phd programs still wasn't 100% sure if i was going to do it or not and i realized i wanted to do something not quite the same as computer vision after getting a little bit of experience in that. And I wanted to do something a little bit more real. So I started transitioning into doing more robotics work in part also because then you're really testing the computer vision system, not just if it can take an image and give you an output that you want to see, but actually you use it as a part of a larger system to complete tasks. That's where I started at Berkeley. And then from there i done a lot of work on machine learning in robotics, how robots can learn. Since then, my research has also broadened slightly as well. So just also trying to advance machine learning itself because I think that the machine learning tools we have right now are not mature enough to really support everything we want to do in robotics. That
1: makes sense. When you were at Berkeley and just starting your PhD, what were the questions you were interested in
0: answering? Essentially, my first project was on having robots learn through trial and error. So can they screw a cap onto a bottle or pour from one cup to another cup? Really basic manipulation tasks. And we actually had an initial project. One of my first projects was to have a robot learn a neural network that mapped from images from the camera to torques applied to the joints. This is something maybe we take for granted, like end-to-end deep learning. But at the time, this was really not applied to robotics tasks whatsoever for the most part. And we got it to work. I worked my butt off over Christmas break with the robot, because there was this deadline in January and we really wanted to try to get it to work before then. Don't put deadlines in January. Uh (laughs) 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 And from there, we were really happy with the success that we had. We got robots to like screw a cap onto a bottle, place a block into a shape sorting cube. But there were also some really obvious limitations, like we told it what the reward function is and we gave it a very nicely shaped reward function saying, You've gotten a little bit closer, and that's something that you don't get in the real world. The real world doesn't tell you how well you're doing at a certain task. That was one obvious limitation. Another thing was that a lot of the tasks, we would have trial and error where the robot would try the task, and then we would put the robot back into the previous scene, and then it would try again. And oftentimes, I would be kind of resetting the scene after every trial. And that's also something that's not really scalable if you want robots to leverage large amounts of data. And then the last thing was that the robot learned a cool skill, but it learned something very specific to the objects that it was seeing and the scene that it was in. And ultimately, if we want to put robots into the world, we can't have them just work for one scene and one object. All of those challenges motivated a lot of the research in my PhD and also still a lot of the research that I'm doing now. And then now, more recently, has that evolved at all? I still want to address all those challenges. I want to see if, like, can we push robots into the real world? Can we actually have them handle any sort of scene that you put in front of it? Even just grasping an object in front of it in any scene, or what I'd love to do is have a robot be able to make cereal in a kitchen that it's never been in before. This is like so, so basic for humans. Anyone can do this probably half asleep, but it's not something that robots can do. And so that's something that I'd love to accomplish. My research has also brought in though too, and one thing that we've done recently that I was excited about is we we're using machine learning for education. So we we're leveraging some of the techniques in meta-learning that we had developed motivated by some of the challenges we had seen in robotics, but actually applying them to give feedback to students in computer science education. And we actually deployed it in a real course with thousands of students, an online course, and the students, it seemed to work. So that was also really exciting. How could you tell that it worked? We did an A-B test. We asked the students, do you agree with this feedback? For some of them, we gave them human feedback. For some of them, we gave them feedback from the system. They actually agreed with the AI feedback 1% more than the human feedback. <laughs> and they rated it useful like four point something out of five. So it was useful and they agreed with it. So I think that's what you want from a feedback system. Did they also rate the human feedback? Was it less useful?
2: I can't remember if it was no. less useful or that. yeah. Okay, that'd be really funny. Was it blind? D- did they know? They, they didn't know it was blind. Band. Yeah, this is great. Randomized confer- Yeah, Yeah, really good. I was just curious, what are some of the The things you saw that are missing or need to make progress that have inspired you to sort of branch out into other areas. Yeah, so one big thing that I've been doing a lot of work on recently
0: is handling distribution shifts. So the train distribution and the test distribution are not always the same. The real world changes over time. This is true in robotic settings because you train it in a lab maybe and then want to deploy it in the world or just it visits a new part of the world that's different. But it's also true in a whole range of other machine learning applications as well. And it's kind of a huge problem. Like, there's all sorts of ways the distribution can change. And we've been trying to study this problem, both in terms of building data sets that allow us to study this problem, because we started working on it and then realized that there weren't any good data sets to actually evaluate our system. So we also have something new coming out (laughs) called wild time that distribution shifts over time. Mm -hmm. And in trying to also, yeah, think about practical tools for allowing us to handle these kinds of problems. And it's not just algorithms for improving robustness. It's also thinking about the entire workflow of how you would actually use this, because if you don't know what kind of distribution shift is coming up, then you don't know which method to use. And so you need to, I think,
2: think about the whole problem as well. On the subject of the wilds benchmark, could you expand a little bit on the in the wild aspect of it as opposed to benchmarks that sort of have more controlled synthetic changes?
0: Yeah. So in that benchmark, we, it really led by Pongwei and Shiori, who did a really amazing job with it, They talk to domain experts in lots of different application areas, ranging from ecological conservation to drug discovery problems. Talk to them about the problems that they see in their work and the data sets, whether there's a data set that kind of reflects those challenges. And also what metrics do they care about as well? And so talking to domain experts and actually trying to find something that reflects the kinds of problems that they use while also having it be accessible to the machine learning community was a big focus. It was a huge effort, and Pengwei and Shori actually like, had like, individual meetings with lots of different people. A lot of these people also ended up as authors on the paper because they were making a significant contribution, and so that's why it has a huge author list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we really wanted to focus on that. Mm-hmm.
1: We think a lot about distribution shift. distribution shift. How do you think about past distributions? How do
2: you decide what it is, and what is in or out of distribution? To give a little more context, because we spent a long time thinking about this in the context of an RL generalization benchmark, but obviously we care a lot about in distribution versus out of distribution and generalization. But I feel like it's really tricky to define those things in reinforcement learning because you have a set of tasks or a distribution of tasks that are sort of hand designed and often are not actually a distribution in the formal sense. So is there any kind of formalism or guiding principle for thinking about what a task distribution is or how similar two tasks are or things like that? Yeah, I think
0: this is a really hard challenge and I think it's an open problem in the field. It depends not only on the distribution that you're sampling from, but the breadth of that distribution and what you sa- like how many things you sample from it. Because if you have a really, really broad distribution and you sample five things from it, then there's going to be other things within that distribution that are out of distribution because you only have these pockets of data, right? So it's a hard problem. And one of the things that we're interested in is building tools for trying to evaluate that. And one of the things that we found, even in like multitask learning settings, is how different two tasks are, two distributions are, not only depends on the data itself, but can also depend on the model and how it learned. And we even found that it could <coughs> also depend on hyperparameters, like learning rates as well, because that affects the model parameters and the model parameters. If it happened to learn something for one task that actually worked well for another task, then they're close. And if they happen to learn something different, they're far apart. And similarly, guess maybe another example is if one task is pick up a fork and pick up a strawberry with the fork, and another task is pick up a spoon, then if you haven't learned how to pick up the fork or the spoon, they're very similar tasks at that point. Because at that point, you just need to learn how to pick it up. But once you've learned how to pick up the fork and pick up the spoon, they're not very complementary. because learning to pick up the strawberry with the fork is fairly unrelated, intuitively at least, to picking up the spoon. So it depends a lot on the model and what you've learned and so forth. Thinking about these distances between tasks or distributions We can't decouple it from the model and what's being learned. Interesting. Interesting.
2: Oh, yikes. (laughs) So it's kind of like a level of abstraction maybe that you're working at where like in a hierarchical sense you start off with you just need to learn how to pick something up and that's a level of abstraction and then it becomes a task distribution of what are you picking up and how similar are those tasks?
0: Yeah, possibly. And I think that this isn't just in the context of robotics as well. I think that you could probably see examples of this in computer vision too. Maybe the low-level features are all shared but the high-level features are very different
1: changing the subject a little bit. In robotics, I imagine you do a lot of work in simulation, so like training and simulation. And there was an interesting recent paper on more high-fidelity simulation is worse. What do you think of, about that paper and kind of the result? And maybe even want to explain the paper so that everyone...
2: Yeah, I assume you're familiar with this paper, rethinking real or something like that. And they were kind of making the hypothesis that maybe higher-fidelity simulations ultimately hurt more than they help because it takes longer to train So for a fixed wall time, you're getting less learning and maybe also like overfitting to small mistakes in the simulation. I think we're just really curious, as someone who does robotics, did that sort of fit with your intuition? Was it surprising? How do you react to that?
0: Yeah. In some ways, I don't think it's too surprising. In some ways, especially if you want to do sim-to-real transfer, then having a broader simulation or having a simulation that makes things harder for your agent can be helpful for transferring. From that sense, I think it's not too hard. And, and also, yeah, high fidelity is going to be slower as well. I mean, basically any simulation, especially for object manipulation, is not very accurate. I was talking about picking up a strawberry with a fork. You can't simulate that unless, well, at least with the things that we have now, unless you, well, I don't think you can simulate that, just period, maybe. maybe. Maybe you could build this like a very special purpose, very slow simulator for it, but that sort of stuff, your current simulators generally can't handle. And so for that reason, I'm a big believer in trying to use as much real data as we can. We've seen a lot of success using a lot of real data in the rest of machine learning. Mm -hmm. So I think we should try to do the same in robotics if we can. What do you think about OpenAI's
1: kind of like robotic hand where they perturb the simulator a lot and then that really helped with the Rubik's cube solving?
0: For a system like that, the shadow hand, I've heard it's extremely brittle. And so I would not... (laughs) (laughs) Fair. I would not want to do reinforcement learning on the shadow hand, that sounds painful. It's a little bit hard to know because I didn't work on the project myself, but I did get a, the sense that they had to tune the simulation parameters quite a bit. Yeah. And that's a manual process. And I think that we should try to move towards more data-driven and more automatic processes in CAN.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting field. It's kind of cropping up called unsupervised environment design. And the idea is like, how can you automatically tune the simulator so that it makes the next problem maximally hard for your agent? Maybe there's some problems there. I don't know. But you're right that the
2: transfer for really fine motor stuff is really hard. So in terms of more and more data-driven approaches for robotics, are there any particular benchmarks that you really wish existed or that you think would really help accelerate that? So one thing that frustrates me actually in the
0: reinforcement learning research is reinforcement learning researchers generally don't work at all. Well, unless they're doing robotics, they generally don't work at all with real data. The rest of machine learning works with real data all the time. It seems like it should be possible. And so the benchmark that I would love to see is something where we actually have real data that plays a role in the learning process, and maybe we evaluate in simulation. And so you can maybe pre-train on the real data, then fine-tune in simulation or something like that. Then we can get all the kind of rigor and thoroughness of evaluating in simulation, but also be able to test whether the algorithms can handle a diverse real data set. So this is something that i have started to try to work on a little bit. You need to build a simulator that's actually kind of close enough to the real world, which is actually hard in manipulation. But it's something that I think would be nice to get more people working with real data. Interesting. What
1: do you think are the blockers to people working with real data?
0: The main blocker is that people don't necessarily have, there's a, well, I think the main blocker is that there's a big ramp up time and a big learning curve in terms of working with real hardware, in terms of robotics. And it also just takes time. We have a current project right now where everything works perfectly in simulation and it's not working at all on the real robot. Actually, I think as of this past week, it's maybe at 50% success, (laughs) Uh, but before that it was maybe like 20% success or something. So there's a gap, even if you're not transferring the policy, there's a gap at the algorithm level. I personally think it's really important to touch real things It also Not just from the standpoint of doing a demo, but also from the standpoint of understanding what are the assumptions that you're making when you're in simulation, like being able to reset the environment, access to reward functions, that sort of stuff. So it keeps you honest, but also it can be frustrating at times as well. That makes
2: sense. Just to clarify, when you talk about a data set for real world data, are you sort of talking about still doing offline RL learning or would you necessarily have to have a robot in order to use that type of data set? So ideally, I'm thinking about
0: a scenario where we have an offline real robot data set that people can just download, Mm. and then they do some sort of pre-training on that data set, and then they fine-tune to a few different simulated tasks that are at least somewhat similar to the kind of real robot environment, and then evaluate in simulation as well. And so they wouldn't need access to a real robot, they would still be able to work with real data, and they'd be able to run lots of evaluations in simulation. Interesting. I would, like, scale the number of people who are able to work on it a lot. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So there's also pitfalls, too. Like, maybe people will exploit it and run thousands and thousands of evaluations, when in reality, you can't do that on a real robot. But something like that, I feel like, might get more people working with real data and might stress test our algorithms more. What are your thoughts
1: on how far we can go with reinforcement learning? Some people say we can't use reinforcement learning forever to get to much more generally capable agents or generally capable robots. I'm curious what you think about that.
0: I guess I'm not sure what the alternatives are. Uh, Neither. I think that, like, imitation learning won't get us as far as I would like to get. And it seems like reinforcement learning should be able to get us further than imitation learning because the robot can leverage its own experience, which is going to be a lot more scalable than demonstrations. There are definitely limitations of reinforcement learning, like needing a reward function in kind of the standard formulation of it. And so I don't think a pure we're going to take PPO or whatever and give it a reward function and run with that, I don't think that will get us where we need to be. But I do think that reinforcement learning algorithms will be a big tool that we need to use to get there. So we may need other tools as well, though, like methods for proposing goals in an unsupervised way or acquiring reward functions or methods for allowing these algorithms to have more autonomy so that you don't need a human to reset every time. I mean, that makes sense
2: feels like a good segue into asking you about more generally how you feel about world models. And I'm curious whether you think that those are a critical component for having a robot that's generally capable, or can you envision a generally capable robot that doesn't have a world model?
0: Overall, I like predictive world models a lot. I like them also just because they're interpretable. If you have a Q function, you can't even look at the predictions and and, and understand if it's learned something useful or not. I mean, you can look at the predictions of one of these models and see what it thinks is going to happen. And if it just completely blurs out the object, you know, it's probably not going to work. Well, <laughs> sometimes it surprises you and still works <laughs> with that sort of thing. But I like that they're interpretable. And I also like that they give you a more stable learning signal that you can look at as well. Bellman error is also not something that is very useful to look at. I do think that there are issues as well. So we don't necessarily need to predict everything in the scene and doing so is nearly impossible at long time horizons. And there are also things in reinforcement learning that have a lot of the same benefits of models. So like a goal condition Q function or a goal conditioned policy is going to tell you a lot about the dynamics of the world. Because a goal condition policy, for example, will tell you how to get from A to B and the actions that will get you from A to B. And that's very similar to saying, okay, if I take an action from A, will that get me to B? So it's like the dual or the inverse of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we don't necessarily need something that's exactly predicting what the future will look like, but I do think we need something that isn't specific to one task that learns about the world more generally. Makes sense. I guess
1: this is a good way to segue into what controversial or unusual research opinions do you have?
0: One that comes immediately to mind is I'm not a huge fan of sim to real. I think that we should just use real data, no sim. Well, we should prototype in sim, but then we should throw away the sim and do yes. everything with real data. Yes, we really resonate with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's one thing. <clears throat> if there must be other things as well. Some people are into differentiable physics, and I'm not sure. I mean, this is kind of related to Simder real, but building physics simulators of the world is hard. Those are a couple that come to mind. There might be others that come to mind later on. Large language models or scaling up things? Any opinions? Yeah, that's a good question. It certainly seems like right now scaling up things is a very promising approach. I don't know if it's fundamentally critical. It seems like maybe there's a way to build better optimizers or better models that don't need such a huge scale. But certainly right now, it's something that I'm excited about. Maybe another somewhat controversial thing is, I don't think language models will help us solve robotics. Like, we don't talk about how to tie your shoe in general conversation. or There's no Wikipedia article that details like, <laughs> low-level motor skill. <laughs> so from that standpoint, I think that they can be useful for long-horizon planning. We actually had a paper called SayCan that uses them for long-horizon planning. Mm-hmm. But I think that actually the low-level motor control is a huge bottleneck. And I don't think language is going to help with that. Yeah, one example I often give people is if someone tells you how to play golf,
1: you don't know how to play golf very well. It's not that helpful, actually, to actually play golf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: There's a lot of information in the world. Did you at any point have any really strongly held beliefs that you've now updated on?
0: I used to be excited about object-centric model, models that learn representations of objects. We were. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then I worked with them a little bit, never really saw any large advantages to using them. And then since then, I also haven't really seen works that have actually applied them to really cluttered and diverse scenes. So from that standpoint, I think, well, right now, I'm not very excited about them. And every time I see a paper with object-centric, I I like look inside the paper just real quickly to look at the pictures. And if it's like a grid world or a really simple setting, then I close the paper.
1: (laughs) I really resonate with that. We used to be really excited about object-centric models also, but then thought about it a lot more. And it's like, well, what is an object? Is this window an object? Is the brick an object? Well, the wall. What about uh, this the wall? Lamp? Yeah. Objects are fractal in a way in the real world. And we form representations of objects in some other way. That is not how these object centric models are learning.
0: Well, it also should be based off of the task that you're doing. So if you want to... Yeah, exactly. If you want to ride a bike, you model the bike as a bike. Whereas if you want to fix a bike or fix a flat tire, you're going to model individual parts of the bike. And so I think the representations that these models learn should be... Influenced by the
1: time. Yeah. And like influenced by the actions that you want to take or yeah. could take. Yeah. Any other position reversals?
0: Yeah. One thing that I used to think was a good thing, and I guess my thoughts around it became more nuanced. So sample efficiency is one thing that comes up a lot in reinforcement learning. We want algorithms to be sample efficient. And I agree with that. And I disagree with that. I agree with it to the extent that sometimes I see papers from one large company that maybe I won't name that has an x-axis that is like 10 to the 10th power or something. <laughs> and it's a really simple task. <laughs> and I just don't know if I can really trust the result. I don't really know if I can trust the result. Like maybe it's just reinforcing the problem. Because uh-huh. that's, that's a lot of data. And it's doing a lot of really dumb things before doing the right thing. So from that standpoint, I think that we shouldn't be using tons and tons of data to solve simple tasks. But the same standpoint, I think that if we have a really tiny amount of data, then we're inevitably only going to be learning a very narrow thing. And so I think we actually need a lot of data, a lot of very broad data, in order to learn something broad. And so I care about learning broad things and complex things, and for that, we need a lot of data. And so generally, my perspective is that I think that online data collection should be sample-efficient, but offline data, if someone has already collected it, then we should use a lot of it. Yes.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like humans, we required lots of data to evolve. Now we have a
0: brain, though, that is really good at sample-efficient online so I sometimes see papers that are learning from scratch with a very tiny amount of data. I don't find that super exciting because it, it means that they're just learning something very narrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's interesting. Okay. One question about research process.
1: What do you think makes a great researcher great? And also, you had two very popular papers, I think, in grad school. For the papers that become very popular, do you know that
0: they are going to see beforehand? Or like, are you surprised? I do think that the ones that have become popular, I think that those ones are definitely ones where I was quite excited about the project as we were doing it, especially middle of the project to end of the project. And so from that standpoint, I think that when I'm submitting the paper, there are some things that I can tell that I'm really excited about it. And if I'm excited about it, that's usually a good sign. It doesn't always mean that the review process will go well. The end-to-end paper ended up being, it's like my second most cited paper. It was in the New York Times. so pretty successful. But it was also rejected from RSS and (laughs) NURIP. And then we finally submitted it to JMLR and got 10 reviews, which isn't really appropriate. And then responded to all 10 of them and eventually got it accepted. And then the MAML paper, which has also been quite successful, we did get that in on the first try, but we had to write a pretty good rebuttal for it. So Why were they so? So uh, the robotics paper, I think it was a political thing. I think the robotics community was not accepting of deep learning. Although it also seemed like at JMLR the editor wanted to put a higher standard on it mm. because I think that they maybe thought that it would be an influential paper and they said because it's going to be influential I want to make sure it's really really good which in some ways I kind of appreciate but at the same time I think that it's not fair to put different standards on different papers so there was that and then for mammal I don't know someone complained that it was similar to a paper done five years prior actually there's there one person who was complaining that was similar to Papers done by like Schmidt-Huber. Uh, <laughs> Schmidt-Huber has thought about everything. <laughs> and so in a rebuttal, we said, oh, these are amazing papers. we'll, we'll be sure to cite these <laughs> <little> papers. <laughs> and we did
2: cite them, um, but yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's so funny. Was there a learning curve for getting papers published? Did you sort of learn tricks for appeasing reviewers and choosing the right venue and all things like that?
0: I've certainly learned some tools, although we still get papers rejected. I think I usually can get at least 2x the, uh, the acceptance rate for my personal acceptance rate, but that's still like only 50% sometimes. So, I mean, there's a lot of noise in the process. One thing that I've found is that if you write a title and an abstract that doesn't have the keywords in it, then you sometimes don't get the reviewers who know the field. And we've had times in which we had a paper rejected a couple of times, and then we specifically try to change the title to get the reviewers who would be relevant for it. And then we got better reviewers, not better scores. Well, we also got better scores, but we got reviewers who were more likely to be interested in it and more likely to be experts in it. Yeah. Um, That's a main tip. All yeah. PhD students so, to know this. One small tip. I, it's not going to guarantee your paper is accepted, but... Right. Um, but at least you get I'll better reviews.
1: yeah. Uh, during grad school, you had lots of papers. How did you end up becoming so prolific?
0: I think that there were a couple of things that I... Did during my PhD that was really helpful. I think the number one thing was just try to find problems that I was excited about. And as a result, I enjoyed the process, but I also worked harder at them because I thought they were really cool and I was curious and I wanted to see what the results were going to look like. I think that that's the number one thing. And then I think the number two thing is finding mentors who can help you learn. And if you feel like you're not learning, then that's not a good sign. And also mentors are people that you can collaborate with that have complementary skill sets. This may not be possible for everyone, but one thing that worked out well for me is that I worked with a postdoc closely, Sergey Levin, who then actually joined as a professor. And I think that we think very differently from each other, and that actually, I think, makes for a really good combination. We have very different strengths and weaknesses. With writing, for example, he's a really good writer, but he has a tendency to kind of make things a little bit too complicated. And I've gotten a lot better as a writer. I learned a lot from him as a writer, but I also have a tendency to try to make the sentences a little bit simpler. That's just one thing, but also technical ideas and so forth. So for me, I think it was really helpful to have someone that I could learn from and someone that I just worked very well with. Interesting. So the researchers that you think are really great
1: researchers, like what do you think makes them great?
0: One other thing that I'll mention as a PhD student is is I was also really eager to learn and improve. And in terms of students that I work with, I think the ones that are eager to hear feedback and listen to that feedback and act on that feedback and consciously act on it, I think that those people are often successful because research is really, really hard and no one comes in being an expert in everything. So if you can improve, if your slope is non-zero, then you'll end up at a higher spot eventually. So, I think that that's one big thing. Picking problems that you think are important, that you're excited about, that you think are a big bottleneck as well. And that requires not just the thinking about what you're excited about, but also thinking about the long term research direction and what are the biggest bottlenecks in the field, and then kind of working backwards from there.
2: What do you feel are the biggest bottlenecks, at least for, we can limit the scope maybe to robotics or reinforcement learning. Or, I mean, or for the field in general.
0: I actually feel like in reinforcement learning and robotics a huge bottleneck right now is just data. And unfortunately this is a rather boring bottleneck because collecting data is not the most interesting thing in the world but there's different facets of the problem that we've been focusing on. One is just like trying to get robots out more into the world and collecting more data in the world and there's a PhD student in my group who's excited about that and it's not as much of a research effort but I think it will advance the field more than other research efforts. Also using videos of humans which is related to, I mean, if you watch people manipulate and use that data, then you can get a much, much broader data set than the robotics data out there. And then also thinking about how robots can scalably collect data. So we can have robots take random actions in the world and wave their arm in the world, but that leads to a lot of data, but it's not super interesting. And so we need algorithms that allow robots to collect data on their own, and that will allow us to collect tons and tons of data. So that's probably the number one bottleneck that I see. And those are, I don't know, three directions that I think make progress on that. And there are three directions that we're working on. Do
1: you have any thoughts on big limitations in deep learning or more broadly in the field?
0: Yeah. So I feel like in deep learning, we have, well, in a lot of fields, we have a lot of data. Although if there's a specific application area that someone's interested in where you don't have a lot of data, then just honestly spending time collecting data, I think, is a good way to make progress on the problem. But beyond that, I think the question becomes going beyond the data distribution. So distribution shift and what we had talked about before. Makes sense. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much. Let's open up
1: for a question. Yeah, just raise your hand and I'll read this mic.
0: I was wondering if you have a timeline for artificial general intelligence. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what is
0: your timeline if you have one? How do you define artificial general intelligence? <laughs> I guess I've never thought about but yeah. How would you define it? I mean, I mean one it. way to define it is getting a robot to make cereal in a kitchen it hasn't been in before. <laughs> That's
1: right. And um, I think it's also different for robotics and digital tasks,
0: yeah, so that's also what I was asking you. I think that if you're talking about doing physical tasks in the world versus something that is, I don't know, something that doesn't need to have that sort of physical touch, it might be different. In general, I think it's pretty long. As someone who works with real robots, I'm pessimistic about long-term things because I think it's it's just really, really hard. Getting real robots to do stuff is really hard, and I think that it's also, plausible that even virtual assistants and systems will need to actually have some understanding of the world beyond the world that people talk about. Definitely not just language. Yeah, not just language. So for that reason, it may also
1: be quite long as well. And when you say long, do you think 10 years, 20 years, 80 years, 300 (laughs) 300 years, a thousand years, never? I think it's hard to
0: predict anything longer than five years. (laughs) But if I could, I don't know, if I would put a number on it, 50 to 100, Long time. What motivates you to want to build a robot that can make a bowl
1: of cereal in an <laughs> unseen kitchen? I mean, it's a funny question, but I kind of mean it. I, I'm not sure that I quite relate to the passion of that I admire, but what is it? Yeah. What gets you motivated about building artificial general intelligence or even A robot that can make a bowl of cereal in an unseen
2: kitchen.
0: Yeah, so there's nothing in particular about that task that I'm particularly excited about. But I do think that that task is something that requires probably some basics of common sense to some degree. You need to know that there is milk in the fridge and what fridges look like. And you need to know how to open new fridges. And it probably also be able to adapt on the fly a little bit. Maybe the first time you kind of open the milk, maybe it's like there's, different kinds of milk containers, and maybe some you need to screw and some you need to like pop off. I'm just really fascinated by how he can do what we do as human. And maybe if we can build AI systems that can do that, maybe it'll help us understand how we do what we do to some extent, what's needed to learn that. And I also think that if we do have systems like that, there's lots of really useful applications that can help in the world. Like labor shortages are a thing right now. Elderly care, lots of really meaningful applications as well. Those are a couple of things. I also think that robots are cool too. Uh, and seeing robots do stuff is really cool.
2: Why did you choose academia over going into industry after your PhD? Yeah,
0: so I was planning to go to industry. And honestly, I realized in my first year after talking to a woman professor that I had never even considered going into academia and becoming a professor before talking to her, which usually I feel like I don't, I'm not really bothered by being a minority or anything. So it was kind of weird to not realize that. I think I just didn't really relate to professors that much. And I also just viewed professors as God a little bit when I was an undergrad. So it's a little bit weird to think that I'm a Stanford professor right now. but uh, You become God. <laughs> yeah, so there was a few things. And I've because I actually have a 20% role at Google Brain, it actually makes me more sure that I'm in the right spot in academia. I like that there's lots of opportunities to work with students and work with people. If I have some new ideas, it's not just me implementing my ideas. I can also talk with other people about them and get people excited about them. And I don't really tell my students what to do. It's only when they ask me about what my ideas are and if they're excited about them, then they'll do them. And if they're not excited about them, they'll do their own stuff. So there's that. I also just like the academic environment in many ways too. It's, there's a lot of energy, I think, at universities because There's lots of naive students that don't realize how hard robotics is or how hard AI is. (laughs) And so they're really excited about things. A lot of energy. A lot of people don't necessarily treat it quite as much as a nine to five job. And there's also a lot of community, I feel like as well, which is nice. And then one other thing that I appreciate, I mean, lots of things. So I also like teaching. I feel like teaching is a way to have impact beyond the research that you do. And there's always some chance that the research that you do won't be that impactful in the long run. But by teaching people and sharing enthusiasm with people, you can have a different kind of impact. And then lastly, I also like the autonomy of being my own boss to some degree. I don't have to convince anyone that we need another robot or that we should hire a postdoc or something like that. I can just do all those things myself. And I've noticed that in the industry, you have to convince people to do stuff. And I don't like trying to persuade people to do stuff. Hi. My name is Summer. I work at Google Brain on Language Modeling. I have a question for all three of you. I'm curious to hear your take about the future of RL specifically. It seems that right now RL is like really good for a few domains like robotics, on um, some hardware software optimization problems, maybe recommender systems, but it's not very broadly applied like NLP or supervised learning. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on why that is and what needs to be done to make
2: RL more generalizable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I guess first I would say RL working for robots is like, I don't know. I think that the problem is in general that deep learning is a bit of a commodity tool. It's something that really anyone can pick up if they have a computer science background and train a classifier to do something. If you collect some data and label it, it doesn't take a ton of work to They can do it. And I think that right now with reinforcement learning, it's not like that. You need to figure out how to define a reward function. Even then there is a chance that the algorithm just won't work. I think we haven't figured out the right workflow to make it easy to get RL to work. And so for that reason, I think it's, even in robotics, it's something that not that many robotic labs are using because it requires some expertise to get to work, some kind of magic sauce or whatever. Yeah, I think that's something that we need to fix. Deep learning used to be like that too. So 2012 was definitely one turning point. It may have been even before that, but restricted Boltzmann machines were, for example, were something that only people in like Jeff Hinton's lab or Yashio's lab knew how to train and get to work because it required some magic sauce. And so I think we're like sort of in that stage in reinforcement learning right now.
1: Yeah, I call it like artisanal RL. We're like an artisanal RL era still. Everything's very
2: artisanal. (laughs) One day it'll be worth monetizing. Yeah. Yeah. You do see a lot of trends moving towards generalizability, though, like meta-learning, which was a big part of your thesis, and all these other setups, like goal-conditioned learning. It's all moving in that direction. Goal-conditioning works shockingly well. It's really interesting. Yeah, and I feel like benchmarks also. We started with how can you beat this very specific game that's deterministic and are moving more and more towards non-deterministic, complex, high-diversity problems.
1: Yeah. Maybe another thing I'll add that I see as interesting is we work in simulation primarily for the purpose of understanding these systems so that then we can work with real data but with an architecture that is better and works well for us like we set up our simulator so that our tasks have a curricula and our simulator has a lot of knobs in it that makes it possible to make a task just very slightly harder and this is pretty interesting because in rl generalization is hard even for humans generalization is hard it's not as hard as for these systems but giving it something that's kind of close to what it's good at but slightly harder for us at least, has been pretty fruitful and interesting. And I'm pretty excited about some of the work in environment design and making it so that you can automatically perturb environments to make it slightly harder so that then maybe like these systems, will be able to learn things. We'll see. Ren, I think we have time for one more question.
2: I just kind of want to start off by saying thank you for your talk. Your passion and enthusiasm for robotics and all of this is just, deeply resonating with me as well so thank you for that so my question is do you think natural language processing will be useful after we train like a robot for example you know to like learn from videos on how to ride a bike or something or actually doing repeated tasks what if we tell a robot like after we show it to actually like learn how to ride a bike what if we map that action to words like will natural language processing do you think will have an impact there
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think NLP can have an impact in a number of different ways. If you had a really good language grounding, then the robot could also ask questions about how to do something. Or if you're teaching it to ride a bike and you tell it, oh, you should, I don't know, relax or pedal a little bit faster or something like that, it'll be able to understand that and use that to actually adjust its behavior as well. And then also communicate. So we want robots to do stuff and also talk. If you have the low level motor skills down, I think language will be useful. Thanks for listening to the Generally Intelligent Podcast.
1: If you like this, please consider giving us a rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at Kenjun, K-A-N-J-U-N. And our lab is at GenIntelligent. Until next time.